Section 7 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1 Prince of Wales, Part 7. Meanwhile, Charles had joined his mother and James at Saint Germain in July 1649. She soon found that this period of independence had made him a very different person. For some time, it was prophesied, the Queen will govern all, but not long. Henrietta expressed her annoyance that he had filled up his privy council without her advice. He told her bluntly that she must not interfere. The Queen began to confer with the King of his business, in which she found him so reserved, as if he had no mind she should be conversant with it. He made no apologies to her nor any professions of resigning himself to her advice. He did as good as desire her not to trouble herself in his affairs, and finding her passion strong, he frequently retired from her with some abruptness. In one matter he was ruled by her wish. He at once took up the interrupted courtship of the Grand Mademoiselle. He had but just emerged from a similar enterprise. His cousin Sophia, the sister of Rupert and Morris, was residing at The Hague during his stay with her mother, Elizabeth of Bohemia, and a flirtation at least was but natural. Fortunately, she too has left us the story in her own words, for she had a quick eye and a sound judgment, and a sense of humour, which did not spare those whom she loved most, as when she said of her precieuse sister Elizabeth, that all her philosophy did not save her from vexation when her nose was red. She describes how keen was the competition for Charles, what pains the English took to secure her favour when it was expected that he would marry her, how the dowager princess of Orange, who wanted him for one of her own daughters, laid a deliberate plot to compromise her with her married son, and thereby to ruin her prospects, and how Charles avoided her while the Scotch commissioners were there, since she made no disguise of her hatred of Presbyterianism and of her worship of Montrose. For a time Sophia owns she was attracted by her cousin, and flattered by his attentions, but the wooing was cut short somewhat abruptly by his own clumsiness. He never really took the trouble to make love, and he could think of no better compliment to pay her than to say that she was handsomer than Mrs. Barlow. As Mrs. Barlow's reputation was perfectly well known at The Hague, the princess thought fit to mark her sense of the impropriety, and when next he asked her to walk out with him, she excused herself on the ground that she had a corn on her foot. Besides, she knew that the marriages of great kings are not made in so simple a fashion and farther, although Charles was richly endowed by nature, he was not sufficiently so by fortune to allow him to think of marriage, especially as there was no money on her side. But it was not until Charles abandoned Montrose that he lost all chance of retrieving his position in her eyes. With the Grande Mademoiselle matters went on in their old course. She was, as before, frankly critical. She thought him improved in looks, but his wit and bearing were not conformable. He was still compelled to use an interpreter to convey his formal compliments and his offer of immediate marriage. Moreover, she had her views as to his inherited defects of character. 
les bourbons sont gens fort appliqués aux bagatelles et peu solides he seemed to know nothing of his own affairs and that was unworthy of a youth of his age worst of all his appetite was too robust instead of toying with some ortolan he would throw himself upon a piece of beef and a shoulder of mutton the poor lad did his best under his mother's eye he kept up the formal siege for three months he made set speeches to her in her coach and gave her to understand that he would give up all his irregular love affairs on the day he was married at length she came to the rescue herself by raising the barrier of religion she could not consent to marry a heretic the leave-taking when at last he went to jersey in september was of a piece with the rest he managed to express a hope that lord jermyn had made his views clear and to stammer out that he was her most obedient servant the lady replied in similar words and all was for the time over mademoiselle does not tell us whether the open association of charles with mrs barlow whom he had brought with him to saint-germain without the least concealment affected her decision as it had affected his cousins the story of this woman may as well be finished at once whether charles was implicated in the very mysterious and temporarily successful attempt at the abduction of her boy immediately after his birth in april sixteen forty nine is not known he refused to listen to the appeal of hyde and ormond that he would break off the vulgar connection nor was it until he returned from scotland in sixteen fifty one that the scandal was finally removed left to her own resources she had fallen into such irregular ways of supplementing them that very shame forbade further association with her and she was pensioned with four hundred pounds a year in sixteen fifty six she came to england with her son and with thomas howard a gentleman of the horse to the princess of orange upon what errand is not known she so imposed upon many of the royalists there by her assertions that she was married to charles that she was received with the greatest reverence and served on bended knee in july she was arrested and placed in the tower but was shortly sent back to flanders as a person without ostensible means of subsistence after a scene of brutal violence on the part of the king's agent at brussels the boy was removed from her control and placed under the care of lord crofts in paris whose name he bore until after the restoration the last thing we hear of her is from evelyn speaking of monmouth his mother was a beautiful strumpet whom i had often seen in paris she died miserably in sixteen fifty seven without almost anything to bury her and james puts the last touch to the sordid story when he adds of the disease common to those of her profession as long as the possibility remained of using ireland as the base of enterprise matters were not in an absolute impasse on september seventeenth charles went with his brother on board the pinnace of which he had been so fond and steering her himself reached jersey safely with the magnificent sum of four livres and a half in his pocket here while awaiting news from ormond he remained contentedly enough he was once more away from his mother and from mademoiselle and from the wearisome etiquette of the court he had hunting and shooting and above all his yacht 
but to his more serious followers these times of forced inactivity showed him at his worst mrs wyndham the governess who had made him ridiculous at bridgewater joined his little court and governed the king and every one else like a minister of state and lord byron writing to ormond on october twelfth says despairingly foreign princes begin to look upon him as a person so lazy and careless in his own business that they think it not safe to irritate so potent enemies his one chance of redeeming himself is to go to ireland and not be taken here in a nook of the world with his hands in his pockets it was not until november thirtieth that charles received ormond's report of cromwell's great campaign and knew that the rotten reed of ireland was forever broken this was the opportunity which bailey had foreseen the time for the kirk to have her will sir george winram was at once dispatched from scotland to holland to consult with the english presbyterians who had assembled there of whom alderman bunce was the chief a good merry and honest fellow if any honesty can be in a presbyterian thence in company with silas titus who had been acting as agent between them and the queen's faction he came straight to jersey bearing a list of eighty of the principal citizens of london who were favourable to a restoration and a message that if charles would agree with the scots he should want neither men nor money the saving clause was emphatic if wrote winram he thinks to have any service of us without ifs and ands he must come up and that shortly to our demands not only the disaster in ireland but charles's utter poverty gave winram hope now is the time to pray that the lord would prevent the king with his tender mercies for indeed he is brought very low when he wants bread both for himself and his servants and betwixt him and his brother not one english shilling was it the abundance of the sense of humour or the total want of it which induced him to add i am confident no ingenuous spirit will take advantage of his necessities his case winram goes on is very deplorable being in prison where he is living in penury surrounded by his enemies not able to live anywhere else in the world yet his pernicious and devilish counsel will suffer him to starve before they will suffer him to take the solemn league and covenant the king's attitude indeed had not been promising on october thirty first he had issued a declaration to his friends in england in which no mention was made of any concessions to the presbyterians in november he was complaining to christina of sweden of the unreasonableness of the scots and by his more ardent followers winram was threatened with personal violence none the less charles knew that the game was up almost without exception his immediate advisers urged him to come to terms with the scots in the first days of january sixteen fifty after prolonged and passionate debate in which the king expressed such moderation patience and judgment as was admirable in a person of his years and such truly as i little expected of him repressing by his excellent temper those heats and animosities which otherwise would certainly have destroyed the business it was decided to treat with the scots upon honourable terms nicholas adding a proviso for himself that this phrase implied a treaty without prejudice to his majesty's affairs under the marquis of ormond or the marquis of montrose 
Windrum was sent back with Charles's offer to meet commissioners from Scotland at Breda on March 15th, expecting them to be guided by a just and prudent moderation. Titus was to press the same lesson upon them through the English Presbyterians, and a separate letter to Robert Douglas, the moderator of the assembly, urged him to do his best to persuade his brethren to limit their demands. To Hamilton, to whom he sent the garter, Charles declared that he would act by his advice. To Rupert, he said that nothing he had done or would do should in the least degree diminish his power or authority and command of the fleet. And lastly, Montrose, who also had the garter, was to proceed vigorously and effectually, and so either persuade to reasonableness or force it by arms in case of refusal. We will not, Charles wrote, before or during the treaty, do anything contrary to that power and authority which we have given you by our commission, nor consent to do anything that may bring the least degree of diminution to it. We hope, said Hyde from Madrid, the Marquis of Montrose will advance this treaty better than all the devotion of the Presbyterians. On February 13th, Charles left Jersey. On his journey, he turned aside to hold an interview at Beauvais with the Queen. She abjured him never to take the covenant, never to abandon the Irish, never to betray his own followers, and he reached Breda early in March. To the austere political moralist it will appear that a consent to treat with the Scots upon terms which were laid before him without concealment, while at the same time he did his best to raise up civil war in their midst, was unpardonable duplicity. Our own judgment is far less severe. The words king and subjects lose their force in circumstances such as those in which he was placed. Charles knew perfectly well that the covenanters needed him quite as much as he needed them, and he knew that they intended to obtain terms from his helplessness, of which but for that helplessness they must have despaired. To the narrow brutality avowed by Winram he opposed a pardonable, if unkingly, deceit. It is not for his treatment of the Scotch Kirkmen that he must be condemned. It is for the cool selfishness with which he repudiated his engagements with Montrose, for his unruffled desertion of his spotless servant, that he owes his first claim upon the execration of all honest men. Montrose had gone to his fate. With one small ship, a few men and a little money, he sailed from Bergen and landed at Kirkwall on March 23rd. Before that time the letters which Charles had written to him had somehow reached the hands of the Covenanters, and the situation with which they had to deal was clear. Argyle indeed was strong enough to carry a resolution that commissioners should be sent to Breda without delay or question but the sterner covenanters insisted that the terms should be nothing less than an absolute and unconditional surrender. Three of each party were placed on the parliamentary commission, while the Kirk sent its own commission of five. When at length Charles met the commissioners, he was fairly in the toils. Of all the plans that had been formed for escape, none had any present chance of success, and his supplications for money in every court of Europe had realized only twenty-two hundred pounds and vague promises. On March 25th he received the Scotch conditions, 
he had gained little by waiting. Besides confirming the concessions demanded in the previous April, he was called upon to surrender to Parliament and the Assembly of the Kirk respectively all future control over civil and ecclesiastical matters. And he was to abandon explicitly Ormond and Montrose. That justly excommunicate rebel James Graham, Irish Catholics and English and Scotch Loyalists and the Church of England. And in return they gave him no shadow of a promise of help. He was to enter Scotland as a puppet and a renegade. For a full month Charles fought against the detestable necessity, hoping even yet in the possibilities of delay. That he shortly saw what the result must be was however made clear when, just as he had sent away Hyde and Coddington a year before, he removed Hopton and Nicholas from the council, and supplied their places by Hamilton, Newcastle, and Buckingham, entrusting to these three the details of the negotiation. This first concession caused consternation among the royalists. God help us, wrote Hatton, when Hamilton, Long, Newcastle, and Buckingham rule in council. I pray, he went on bitterly, let us know whether the king has deserted my lord Montrose, and that the next bout shall be my lord or Ormond, or whether, according to the finer phrase, for abandoning him, his majesty has commanded him peremptorily into Ireland. Hyde's view may be seen in his letter to Morley from Madrid. If the Covenanters would give up every position for which they contended, if they would submissively wage war against the English rebels under the leadership of Montrose, then, and not until then, there might have been matter for sad consideration and counsel upon what security these men ought to be trusted. Otherwise, he said, is it a king's condition, or even the condition of a gentleman, that he can get? Meanwhile, under the new auspices, matters went briskly on. Acting on the advice of the Prince of Orange, the Duke of Lorraine, and Christina of Sweden, to promise anything, and break the promise when you can, Charles, though with great passion and bitter execration, gave up successively Montrose and the Cavaliers, Hamilton, Lauderdale, and the other engagers, and the Irish Catholics. Upon this he was formally invited to come to Scotland, and on May 1st he signed the first draft of the Treaty of Breda. Two days later he sent orders to Montrose to disband, and on May 12th he announced that he utterly dissociated himself from his action. Montrose never received the letter, and it may be hoped, never realized the treachery. On April 27th, he fought his last fight at Corbisdale. On May 4th, he was captured, and on May 21st was done to death. Charles reached the extremity of paltriness when he wrote to the Scotch Parliament that he did not regret his champion's defeat. This dastardly betrayal, for which he never expressed a word of regret, leaves him with less hope of successful appeal than the betrayal of Strafford left to his father. The only possible palliation suggested for him is that he had perhaps received assurances on Argyle's part that the life of Montrose should be spared. Humiliation followed hard upon the base deed. When the news of Corbusdale arrived, the Scotch stiffened their terms once more. Charles was now to take the oath to the Covenants, before he set foot in Scotland, and whenever the demand should be made. All treaties and agreements whatsoever with the bloody rebels in Ireland were to be void. 
nor was he ever to permit any liberty of the popish religion in ireland or any other part of his dominions the engagers were to give security and satisfaction to the kingdom before they were allowed to return and nothing in the act of classes the act by which they were cut off from public life was to be repealed to all these conditions charles gave way although he ignored the question of the engagers and on june second he embarked at harslerdyke with hamilton lauderdale dumfermline and brentford while of his english following buckingham wilmot henry seymour mr rhodes and his physician dr fraser with his two chaplains also accompanied him on one point only he had made a last assumption of independence from dr john livingstone one of the commissioners of the kirk we have the climax to the story of his delinquencies the saturday before the king left breda we got notice about three or four o'clock in the afternoon that he was to communicate kneeling to-morrow afternoon we prepared a paper and presented it to him and both by the paper and by speech showed him the sin of so doing and the provocation to god to procure the blasting of all his designs when we went to him after supper we found him tenaciously resolute to continue his purpose he said his father used always to communicate at christmas easter and whitsuntide and so should he he had already scandalized the scotch ministers by denying that the scriptures were a perfect rule in matters of controversy by questions of a painfully sceptical tone by continuing to use the english service and by bawling and dancing into the early morning but all this was to come to an end now the shadow of the kirk and covenant lay drear and heavy upon him hearing that charles and lord cassillis were on board one of the ships in the harbour and alone livingstone and a colleague boarded it thinking it a pity that the king and lord cassillis should be there and none to preach to them on the eleventh off heligoland after many futile struggles and appeals he signed the latest draft of the conditions and in pursuance of them on june twenty third outside the mouth of the spey he swore to the covenants and then only on the twenty fourth but not until he had notable sermons and exhortations made by the ministers to persevere therein he was allowed to land on scottish soil livingstone describes for us the scene of the signing he heard that the king is minded to speak some words when he swore the covenant that his oath should not import any infringing of the laws of england the time for such assumptions was over charles was at once told that his oath could not be accepted if a single word was added and although he pressed much and long that he behooved to do it it was in vain finally we hear for the outward part of swearing and subscribing the covenants the king performed anything that could have been required yet without any evidence of any real change of heart so far indeed was it from that that livingstone expressed the fear that they were taking the plague of god to scotland if the king as had been said before with remarkable prescience join not with the scots he is undone and if he do they are what all this meant to those who cared for charles's honour may be fairly guessed by their words his mother was deeply hurt god forbid she said that i should have had a hand in persuading him to sacrifice his honour and conscience she might she told him still love him as a son but she would never again be his adviser 
Hatton was almost incoherent with disgust. Hopton went to Utrecht in despair. Nicholas declared that he could not with any comfort continue where honour and conscience were mockeries. Hyde wrote from Madrid a letter which is a masterpiece of passionate irony. But he best expressed his attitude for the moment and for the future in a few private words to the Countess of Morton. They will still live to be ashamed who gave the advice at Breda, which was founded so irrationally, and can succeed only by miracle. But we must all make the best of it now it is done, and pray to God Almighty to give such a temper of mind and courage upon this great alteration, that we may neither be inclined to anything that is not right by any example or concession that is made, nor shaken in our affection or duty to the king, for anything which the necessity of his condition extorts from him. It was even more important that the royalists in England were so dissatisfied at the journey into Scotland, on such dishonourable and ridiculous, or rather no conditions, and still more at the abandonment of Montrose, that all hope from them was for the time gone. It may seem beneath the dignity of history to relate how Sophia of Hanover, with whom Charles had been flirting a year before, expressed the disgust which became the sister of Rupert, or how the sweet Princess Elizabeth, the frail girl of fifteen, who died a month later at Carisbrook, hath wept daily ever since. Charles had then alienated his mother, had disgusted his best friends, had lost the cavaliers in England and the whole Catholic connection, and had violated his written word to Montrose, Rupert, and Ormond, on the chance that he might recover his throne by the help of a Scotch army. It is here that the disgrace lies, that he had also bound himself to a rule which he detested, and had taken oaths which he meant to break, lies in a different plane of moral reprobation. To call this hypocrisy is, we hold, entirely beside the mark. There can be no hypocrisy when the verbal deceit is recognized on both sides as part of the game. Charles landed in Scotland with lies upon his lips, by virtue indeed of those lies. But every covenanter who had brought him there knew, like Livingston, that they were lies, and he, in turn, was aware that they knew it. On either side, the distrust was frankly expressed. They were conscious that they had traded on his dire necessity to induce him to place himself in their power, and they held him by the written word only. They meant to do their best to see that he kept to his bond, while by their very precautions they almost admitted his right to escape from it if he could. They wanted him among them in order that under his name they might exalt the covenant which he abhorred above the sectaries, and they knew that he hated them in all their ways. To bend him to their will was their resolve. To trick them as best he could was his. "'Tis a matter of pleasant observation, wrote a shrewd observer during the negotiations, to see how they endeavour to cheat and cozen each other. The king strokes them till he can get into the saddle, and then he will make them feel his spurs for all their old jade's tricks, and they know it, and therefore will not agree he shall back them with his heels armed. They hate the thing monarchy, but they must have the name of it, and they care not for the person of the man, but his relations. They must make a property of him. No other will serve to stalk their ends by. End 
of section seven